0: Welcome everyone back to the Comp Bio Cafe. We're your hosts, Janae
1: and Melissa.
0: And today we're really thrilled and excited to chat with Kaylin Clifton. Kaylin is our highlight for the month, uh, one of our member highlights for January. Uh, Recently published a really awesome paper that we'll have the opportunity to chat about in just a second here. Uh, Before that, I want to go ahead and introduce Kaylin and we'll hop right into our chat. Kaylin is currently a PhD student in the biomedical engineering program at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. She joined the JeffWorks lab led by Dr. Jean Fan, in 2022 to develop software for analysis of data from spatial transcriptomics experiments to investigate gene expression in spatial organization of cells and tissues. Kaelin is an alumna of William & Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, USA, graduating in 2018 with a Bachelor of Science in Computational and Applied Math and Statistics. She is also a recipient of the National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellowship. Congrats on that. In addition to her research, Kaylin is passionate about developing future scientists. She has been mentoring high school and undergraduate student research teams, completing synthetic biology projects in the annual iGEM competition. She previously held several positions in JHU uh, Biomedical Engineering EDGE, which is a student-led organization that developed programming for fellow graduate students about professional development skills, career exploration, and internships. Welcome, Kaylin.
2: Thank you for the
0: introduction <laughs> so yeah thanks for being here um actually melissa do you want to ask the first question
1: yeah so we're going to be asking all of our guests this same question just to kind of hop us get us in to things so what is your relationship with current bio um so my relationship
2: with computational biology um, I started off with an interest mostly in biology. I did my undergrad in, in computational applied math, but when I went in, I thought I was just gonna be a biologist, but I learned about how to do computer science like my junior year. Um, and I thought that that was a really interesting tool to to use to approach science. And so I kind of pivoted there and started working on things where we can use computational tools to explore biological data. Um, and so in graduate school, I looked for programs that could merge those two things together and yeah I'm enjoying it so far.
1: Nice I feel like we have a similar path where I wasn't initially interested in biology and then
0: moved into that space in undergrad. Nice so um, can you tell us more about that transition Uh, what was kind of going through your mind as you were kind of deciding on your final path what was important in your experience at that time for you to, to help you make that decision?
2: Yeah, so I think I don't know if I took a really direct path to where I am now. I've always been interested in, in science and like inquiry and answering questions in that way. Um, but I wasn't really sure like what methods or how he's going to do that. Um, I think though, like, I look to the kind of courses that I enjoy learning in. Um, I've always enjoyed like math courses. Um, I figured out I like computer science. And I think that like having those experiences and those skills and the courses um, led me to want to do research in those areas as well. Um, I was doing research in more um, pure biology. I was in a bird behavior lab for a while where we like took blood from birds and measured their hormone levels, Uh, not very quantitative, Uh, but I think that getting exposure to other research topics, um, I did a little bit in like a cartilage tissue engineering lab. um, And that was kind of a a experience where we're going to think about modeling the shape of the cartilage tissue in like the knee joints. They have this kind of like wavy structure and how can we use splines or modeling to um, infer some changes? So. Not only do you just visually look at it, but maybe there's something that you can quantify about the angles or the shape or something like that. Um, So that was an example of, I think, computational on the biological data. Maybe not what other people think about, like, mm-hmm. computational biology or bioinformatics. Um, but I enjoyed that, too. And then when I got to graduate school. I was in a different lab for a little bit. I was doing a uh, computational cardiology. They were doing, like, virtual heart simulations uh, to... Figure out um, based on imaging would people go into some sort of like cardiac event, or um, if they are, they do have some sort of uh, disease state like um, cardiac infarctions or something like that. Um, how could you treat that? You can make a model and then show if we were to remove this tissue or kill this tissue, would that solve their their heart arrhythmia problem? Mm-hmm. But I wasn't having much success in that lab, so I looked for a new advisor, and I found uh, the Jeff Works lab, and um, I really enjoy doing the spatial uh work. I think anything that has something about like space and visualization um, is something that I, I enjoy.
0: Yeah, I think um, you really touched on a lot of different points we've also discussed in our last episode about kind of like, what is CompBio, what can CompBio look like? So diving in even deeper into that, uh, how do you feel like your interdisciplinary background in math, computer science, biology influence your approach to research today. So um, you talked about doing work and like modeling, using, applying modeling to a biological system that may not necessarily look like bioinformatics. How do you kind of package and communicate your overall skill set and computational thinking to these different types of problems you're solving? Yeah, I think that that's
2: a good question about like how everyone approaches such interdisciplinary topics. Um, I think that in my lab, at least, um, we have lots of different levels of expertise. Some people come from the more experimental side; they may already be thinking about like how to um, do experiments on single cells or uh, that type of direction. Um, I have less experience on like the experiments related to spatial transcriptomics, but. I come from a different side um, of having some like training in mathematical uh, background. And so Mm -hmm. I think it really helps for like collaborations, especially for my work. You have collaborations with people in imaging science who have worked on particular mathematical frameworks for um, handling that type of data, um, Mm -hmm. data that's like CT or MRI data, Mm -hmm. which is very different from standard like uh, molecular biology information but right. they've already developed such like mathematical frameworks and so bridging that gap of how do we move this kind of conceptual thing to the application mm-hmm. um, of this type of data is something that I can help um,
0: with in the lab. Nice. Nice. That's really awesome.
1: And can you briefly describe what spatial transcriptomics is and how that differs from um, traditional gene expression? Mm-hmm. Um, so
2: the spatial transcriptomics is like traditional gene expression in that we're profiling cell behavior. Um we're looking at what genes our cells expressing. So what are they going from from DNA to being transcribed into RNA? Um but in uh, typical or like the historical uh gene expression technologies, you've had to dissociate the cells and then read each cell's gene expression independently. But with spatial transcriptomics, you can retain the cells and the tissue in their original positions. And then we also record the positions of the cells. So for every cell in the single cell methods, we can get a cell position um, and then counts of RNA transcripts for every gene. There are a couple of other spatial transectomics technologies that are our larger spot resolution. So we don't know every single cell, but we can say in this position on this coordinate system, there are these transcripts that are being expressed in this, like, collection of cells that are, are likely to be there.
1: And you you mentioned that with traditional, like, molecular biology assays, like with gene expression, methods are really well-developed there. Can you talk about your motivations for developing STLi and what challenges does it address in the field? Um. So regarding... Um,
2: doing analysis on traditional gene expression. There are lots of packages and, and expertise on how to handle um, count data, but there's not a lot of information or technologies developed for uh, spatial transcriptomics. And so once those types of like experiments have been designed, um, people have been using those experiments on tissues. And so they'll get like a, uh, you can profile one, thin slice of tissue at a time from a tissue block, and every time you get one tissue, you can do some sort of qualitative analysis on that single tissue, but for getting um, really strong observations, you need more statistical power and and more samples. Um, So to be able to do that type of like joint analysis where you have lots of different thin slices, you need some way to align those tissues all together now that they've been sliced from the, the large tissue block. Um, So that's what SC align is for. Um, It's for, once you have your thin tissue slice, um, how can you spatially align the points in two separate slices, whether they come from the same tissue block, um, they're like serial sections, or if you have two different like case and controls, um, you have one non-disease state and one disease state, and you wanna look at the same um, tissue area, like how can you compare those two at matched locations? Um, you need a tool to be able to do that.
1: That's really impressive. Does your lab focus more on the computational side, like developing these tools, or is there a biological question driving the development of these tools? So right now, our lab is only a
2: purely computational lab. Um, We rely on collaborations with experimentalists to kind of drive the biological questions that we have. Um, There are... Generally, some like biological topics that collaborators often have, um, but they can be like very wide ranging. Um, also, there are lots of freely available uh, data sets. And so we've looked at like uh, tumor microenvironment or breast cancer tissue. Those are like open source data sets um, that people have been collecting. There's lots of big data mm-hmm. without a biological question. And I think as we make the computational tools, we look to like, That open source data as like a a trial run um, to use our, our data on rather than like answering a particular question in biology.
0: Can you go more into a little bit more detail into the types of data set that you demonstrated in the ST Align paper? What's the significance of choosing that particular data? Or are there certain use cases where ST Align may be a better tool? Or a better decision to use compared to what's out there?
2: So in the paper, the main tissue type that we focus on is a single cell profiling of a mouse brain. And so I think that the single cell aspect is very important and things that hadn't really been addressed before. Um, I talked a little bit about like the history of spatial tranchectomics and the two different like technologies. And so Originally, spatial transcriptomics actually referred to the name of a technology that was a, a spot resolution technology. Mm-hmm. And so they have like, say, a hundred spots they can profile at a time. But now mm-hmm. we've moved to single cell tran- spatial transectomics. They can profile hundreds of thousands of cells. Um, and so technologies are methods that have been developed to analyze or like spot resolution data don't really apply well to the single cell because you Need to kind of computationally scale that up, in every instance or calculation that you make just scales with the number of points that you have. Um, so we develop a method to address this computationally extensive uh, part of the project. So I think that the the single cell uh, data is a really important to mm-hmm.
0: example of, to use this on. Mm-hmm. So for listeners out there who maybe don't understand like this scale, which is also something that I struggle with, can you paint a broader picture about the significance of like accounting for computational complexity, particularly within this type of analysis?
2: Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that for like an alignment problem, one way you can approach the problem is if You have a point in space and you want to move it to somewhere else. Um, You can do like a calculation of how close is this point to its neighbor. And then I move that point like maybe halfway between it and its neighbor. Um, And so for doing that type of like independent uh, calculation, Mm-hmm. You would need some amount of time. And then every time you you do that for your, your next neighbor, that starts to really add up. And so this is kind of similar to how people uh, like approach storing information. Um, it's easier to store information with uh, like less resolution. So mm-hmm. say like you have like a really high resolution uh, photograph, um, you need a lot of like space to to do that, um, to store that information. Uh, But if you have something that's more lower resolution, then it's easier to work with, easier to manipulate that. Um, And so I think that that's
0: what really happens when we have such big data issues. Mm -hmm. So is there a particular, um, I guess, computational scope that STLine takes to solve a particular problem? Is it like an optimization approach? Is it, you know, some sort of, um, you know, something similar mathematically? What's kind of the mindset in, in that? Because you, you mentioned, you know, how people think about certain types of storing problems. My optimization bell is going off. But like, what does that look like for this tool?
2: Yeah, so we do use optimization to find the, the mapping, that aligns the two data sets. Um, so it's really like two like novel techniques that we bring. One is we take, if you have a single cell data set, we reduce the Information by doing a process called rasterization. And so that's going from individual points into pixels. So you can think kind of like when you look at a map and you can see every individual tree in a really high resolution map. But then when you like zoom out, they just give you like a green square. So that's, that's kind of the same idea. We can take uh, hundreds of thousands of points and choose any uh, number of resolution pixels. Um, so that's what we do first to down sample the data. And then once we have this downsampled data, we need to perform some optimization to get from our source data to our target data. And so there are lots of different approaches that you can choose to do that type of transformation. Um, We use a method called uh, large deformation diffeomorphic metric mapping. It's kind of a mouthful, but (laughs) essentially what it does is Prevents you from choosing solutions that aren't smooth. So it allows nonlinear solutions, but they all have to be smooth solutions. So it's just a way to like penalize what that mapping from your source
0: should, to target should look like. Mm-hmm. So cool. I feel like I'm learning so much from a new perspective right now. And um, I think this is such a cool tool and um, really cool to see the approach and the computational thinking that goes into something like this. So we touched on it a little bit. Um, Obviously, like, ST-Align is a powerful tool. Is there another maybe school of similar tools or approaches that it compares to? Or this is a completely different ballgame?
2: So there are um, other people coming up with solutions to this kind of alignment problem. And I think that it takes a different approach with regards to how we pre-process the data um, doing that type of rasterization is, is novel, but the other things that people will often do is kind of a more rigid linear transformation. So these are often uh, landmark based transformations where you can find some points in your data set that you know should match to the other data set and you use those um, and then just kind of like calculate the what do you need to do to that landmark in your source to make it in the same spot in the target. Um, and so landmark-based methods are a good way to to do um, alignments, but they require you to have some sort of prior knowledge about mm-hmm. where to put your landmarks um, and your data set. And I think that for a lot of spatial transjectomics uh, data sets, we are undercovering different structures that we may have not had some sort of knowledge about before. So it may be hard to make landmarks without some sort of prior investigation um and then there are other methods that aren't as much landmark based but they are just taking another approach
1: that um works better on smaller scale data sets so when you say landmark do you mean that like in the imaging process someone places like a specific landmark or is it more from a computational approach so um the
2: landmarks would be a user generated so you'd have to indicate some sort of like point to flag um and we do use that method um to improve sd align as well um i think that we can also do it without landmarks and we think of that as like just intensity comparison so each image will have a pixel intensity and we can compare the pixel intensity at the match location, the other one and and see if they're similar. And if not, we can move to another pixel or and things like that. Um and so we we do get like features and they they have some sort of like structure based on the intensity, but we wouldn't think of those um as like knowledgeable or known landmarks.
1: And can you tell me how STLN contributes to achieving high gene expression and cell type correspondence across matched spatial locations. So for evaluation of whether SC-Align is a good tool for alignment,
2: we evaluate whether uh, gene expression correspondence exists between the source that we've aligned to the target. And so we can do that type of analysis by comparing matched locations and saying at these two locations, what's the counts in our source and what's the counts in our target. And then we can do a correspondence. So we use cosine similarity in um, our our manuscript. And the cosine similarity is similar to like Pearson's correlation, just a a metric for correspondence. So if things are like closer to one, that means higher correspondence. So we'll do that for every gene that may exist in their spatial transcriptomics dataset. Um, Some data sets have like a panel of genes that you decided and they'll have like maybe up to like 500 or so or uh, below a low couple of thousand genes that you can for each gene you can check what the spatial pattern is and your source and your spatial pattern your target and for things that you kind of expect to have some sort of spatial correspondence once you do the alignment you should see a high correspondence between that um, and so that's what we see using sc for Things that have like a stereotypical or highly structured gene expression pattern. When we do the alignment, we do see great correspondence between them.
1: Nice. And are there specific genes or cell types that STLRN is particularly effective at identifying? I think that uh,
2: the cell type has to be not homogeneously spread out across the, the cell. So it can't have some sort of like random pattern. Um, so I think most, well, not most cells, like there are probably some cell types that are more structured than others. We looked a lot of like brain tissue and brain tissue is usually like very highly structured. And so you can see alignment there, but maybe other types of tissue, like, um, immune cells and like tumor environments may be more sparsely positioned and you wouldn't really expect any type of alignment between like two slices from two different individuals, they wouldn't have um, expected alignment there. So I think it does kind of depend on like the function of the cell type of how structured it is.
1: And in terms of like comparing normal tissue versus disease tissue, is that kind of an assumption you have to wrangle with when using this tool? Yes. So
2: you'd have to still expect there to be spatial structures that have an alignment. So like a loss of structure isn't something that you would likely align two tissues to compare. What we do in our model have the ability to assign pixels to either they're, these are pixels with an intensity that we want to match, or their intensity that we think is the background um, or an intensity that we think is an artifact. And so in that way if there's some sort of like missing or structure or some sort of like tear in the tissue or something else that's caused by a disease state you can take advantage of that technique and mark this like region as something to not match between the the
0: slices Nice that's so really interesting and I think that's really important as we get into the next question too because you're talking a lot about the genes having some sort of structure I'm sure that really helps with like interpretability and also um, integrating with other resources. Um, So you mentioned that you aligned data sets to the um, well in the paper um, it mentions the Allen Brain Atlas. So how does ST align integrate with these other existing resources and what benefits does this integration offer?
2: Um, so, so like the premise for doing alignment can be either comparing between two different data sets or creating kind of like a consensus profile. So like generating these types of atlases is one rationale behind the tool. And so the Allen Brain Atlas is a atlas that's been developed by many different technologies. Is something's known about the brain from computer tomography or other types of structural information and so this atlas has all of the brain regions already annotated for where they like exist spatially and so if you have some sort of tissue sample from like a mouse that is not marked already or annotated if we're able to take that tissue and align it to the atlas then we can use the annotations from the atlas to annotate all of the cells in our, our new tissue. So it's really one way to like integrate information when you're able to align to any type of like atlas that's available that has more information than you have about your existing tissue.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and just briefly for our newer listeners, can you explain what an atlas even is? And I think um, single cell people might be more acquainted with this but um, can you just give a general overview?
2: Mm-hmm. So in a lot of computational work, there is a desire to kind of share um, information as like a reference. And so atlases are kind of things, data that we've condensed into to one reference where you can compare any, any sample to that. I think for some data sets, they're going to be, like have some sort of spatial component, but they can also be just other type of reference databases.
0: Yeah, I think this is a great crash course on a very um, detailed high-resolution view of single cell and also a um, really popular field in spatial transcriptomics. Thinking about availability, you mentioned earlier this um, being available as an open-source Python toolkit. Could you just discuss the importance of this and making tools like STLine accessible? We also talked, you literally just answered some of it, is the importance of data sharing. How does that principle show up in the work that you do as a scientist then?
2: Yes, I think that uh, having open source is really important uh, as everyone has like a different level of expertise. And I think for our lab, we're mostly working on software tool and tool development. And so we have to make our tools usable by experimentalists, people who are doing the work of processing all of these tissue samples and have some biological question of interest. We want to make the tool available for them to do the analysis on their tissues and answer the questions that they have. And so I think that making open source code and not just open source, but like having that user in mind is really important. So that people can begin to do those types of analysis. Of course, we'd love to have like collaborations and be a part of that process. Um, I think collaborations are really important for like experimental design. Like if we're giving them feedback on what the tool can do, they can make some sort of decisions at the beginning of their experiment about how they're going to design it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think also like just sharing that information gets people ideas about what's what's possible um, and gives us feedback on what we can improve on the tools as well we do have our tool shared on like github and so i get like github issues about things that can be improved and so that's
0: really helpful as Mm -hmm. well so what are maybe some considerations that you had i mean did you go into the project knowing that it would be something like publicly available or widely collaborated on or or even just you know what are, what are maybe some steps in terms of the framework and um, going back to that experimental design portion you just mentioned, what should people be thinking about when it comes to making their tools open source?
2: I think uh, for making tools open source, I think we do start with that in mind when we develop the tools. We know that we're going to have people have some sort of like user-friendly interface in some way. I think one thing that we keep in mind when we're developing the tools is like providing tutorials about how to use them. And I think that that really comes out of like when we're writing and doing the evaluation of a tool ourselves, like what data sets we're practicing on and giving that to other people to do the tutorial as well. It's something that we have in mind at like every stage of the software
0: development. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that you emphasize that it, it's something that is a consideration at every stage, um, and I think it's it's hard to you know make it an afterthought and still uh, be uh, something that's um that's putting like you said the end user in mind um, at every step. I think you can really tell the difference these days when you're going through documentation and looking at other tools to use too.
1: Yeah, I think this tool is really cool, and I really like the novelty. Of using the rasterization and the cosine similarity. I was just wondering, what are some of the remaining challenges or limitations in the field of spatial transcriptomics for tools that look like SDLI? I think some of the
2: remaining challenges are kind of like application based questions. Um, We do have like collaborations with different scientists trying to, to use this device and so we get a better idea of like how people have designed their experiments and what they want to do. I think what like a lot of what we do as scientists is make an observation of what's actually happening and so our ability to observe that may not always reflect exactly what's happening so we need like very I guess clean is what people kind of call the data like it truly does reflect what's happening and so I think that we have some issues like when the data sets don't retain that kind of like structural information or like the imaging is deteriorated in some way, how do we approach those problems for alignment? And I think there are still other kind of like questions regarding like analysis that are still unanswered. So once we do some sort of like alignment, like Now I have these two tissues, what do I want to know about the cells? Um, Like, how do I say that this this type of cell has these types of neighbors? Um, How do I quantify that? Like what types of algorithms or uh, metrics can I develop to do that type of like downstream analysis? So a lot of that is also things that my lab works on, like neighborhood analysis, Mm -hmm. but something that's still in development.
1: Yeah, that just highlights the fact that, like, within the spatial field, the first or, you know, one of the major challenges that your tool overcomes is actually being able to ask the biological questions in the first place. So first aligning the tissues, either diseased or um, non-diseased or across um, the same cell type. And then we can ask the questions um, like, what, what are the difference between the neighborhoods between these two cells? Uh, to uh, conditions or what have you.
0: Well, Kaylin, this is a really great paper. Thank you for sharing all the details uh, with us. Um, If people want to learn more, what's the best place for them to find more information about this paper specifically?
2: Um, Yes, it's a great question. So um, we have a published paper, and then we also have the tutorials. Um, It's on jeff.work/stalign, And so you can play around with uh, the tool. We have some different data sets that we've applied it to, and then also give the option to um, apply it to
0: your own data sets. Awesome. Cool. So we'll probably link those in the show notes or something of the sort for people to find them. And uh, I do want to circle back on our final leg of the episode to talk more about you and your teaching experience and your personal goals. You know, how has your interest in like working with high school students or students in general? influenced how you approach your research or um what you want to do with your career especially working on and leading a project like this what are you taking away from that
2: um yeah I think that in like project design um there are like opportunities to kind of understand like how to lead a project and um, there are lots of like soft skills that are unrelated to the, the project that you have to learn and I think that being able to teach people those is, is a really valuable thing. Um, I really enjoy kind of that like molding future scientists part. Um, I think that there's like coursework to help that, but also like you need that type of mentorship as well. And so I do have a lot of that on the side of like not only in this research project, but I help high school students and undergraduate students develop their own research ideas as well. And that kind of like problem solving skills, it can be on any research question. Um, I think that it reflects computational really well as well. Like you can talk about any type of research question and we're just using like the same tools. I think that's a similar way to like approach science as well. We we're all using the same like dogma or same framework, but it can be applied to any type of question. So I really like being able to teach students how to do that like hypothesis generation and experimental design and things like that. And so I've been doing a lot of that and hopefully like it's a career I'll go more and like to teaching and like
0: doing a professorship or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and can you explain or maybe want to share more of a particular memorable experience or a success story from maybe your past experience teaching um, experimental design or any other area in the STEM education you know data science computational field what does that look like for you? Yes.
2: Um, so I guess a recent experience is I've been mentoring some undergrads at Hopkins in this synthetic biology competition. And so the last couple of years, they've been working on different projects. The the first year they designed a way for uh, plants to grow better in space. And um, it wasn't too like computationally heavy. They just had kind of this idea that roots don't have gravity in space so they don't like grow down um and so what if we get them to grow down by using a different uh force like a magnet or something so they engineer the process to to get some iron into cell roots and then you'd have a magnet to grow them down um and so very interesting yeah Yeah. (laughs) um and so i think that it's really cool to fair like encouraging people to pursue that type mm-hmm. of like novel idea and and um they did really well this was like their first time of the or well, they their first time really making it all the way to the end of the competition with kind of like knowledge of like what the um criteria were um and so they were able to get a gold medal for for this idea wow. um,
0: so i
1: was really proud of them for that
0: nice that's so awesome that's really cool yeah
1: congrats um so you mentioned a future interest in pursuing a career in academia how do you see your experiences both in research and student organizations and this mentoring program shape your approach to academia I think
2: I've had like lots of different mentorship opportunities as like an undergrad and um a graduate student like being the mentee or being the mentor and I think that that kind of like reflects uh what like my values are um and being like a, a mentor in academia um I think I'm still in the process of like understanding like what a lab would look like mm-hmm. um and what things that I want there but I, I do think that like um it has encouraged me to like seek skills and that type of thing so I've taken coursework and like teaching at undergraduate classes Mm -hmm. Um, and I think like that type of learning about pedagogy is an important Mm -hmm. thing because teaching is part of professorship and you don't really get like a lot of guidance in that Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think that like the not only like the experiences having different mentors like learning from them but also like having a scientific approach to teaching or mentorship is something that I've also think is like really valuable and something I want to take to the next step
1: so why
2: professorship specifically that's a good question um i think that if i went into like an industry position there are also still opportunities to do teaching um i had like adjunct professors who mainly had like their own company or like are an entrepreneur or something like that and then they like taught statistics at the university so that that's one thing that I could potentially do as well. I think that any type of like career in science that I've had in the the past, like as a graduate student, I've also like freely done teaching things on the side. And I think yeah. it would it'd be easier if it was also part of my job and it wasn't like <laughs> a thing I had to choose yeah. to, to sacrifice. Yeah. yeah. So I think I like the idea of like academia, integrating those naturally um, instead, of, instead of having them something on the side.
0: Yes. Yes. I feel the same way too. I've, I mean, not done it freely all the time, but I I do think there's so much value in like curriculum development and just working with students. And I can really tell that you have spent a lot of time thinking about this and um, definitely have like the right skill sets. Do you have other things that you're looking toward continuing to develop as you prepare for that? What does that next step look like? And I think also from there, since I'm I'm at the stage of finishing my program, s- similar crossroads, then we can maybe contrast.
2: Yeah, I think that one thing is like having a lab requires uh like uh, a theme, like it's something mm-hmm. that you have to want to pursue as as part of your lab, and I think that coming up with that question is is very difficult. Though I talked to like current faculty about how did they choose the question that they they have and i think that some of it's just like whatever the last thing that they worked on is the beginning of their lab and then from there you don't actually really have to worry about it because your students will come up with their questions and then it just like follows whatever they're interested in Mm -hmm. so that's like one fallback though i guess i'll consider but i'm still like searching for Mm
0: -hmm. what do i
2: actually want to be my niche in the scientific world Mm -hmm.
0: um to, to pursue. So for you right now though is that still um, entailing doing a long-term postdoc after your program or would you do some other type of experience?
2: I would likely do a postdoc. I think that like at least in this market there aren't really a lot of opportunities to be a professor straight out of graduate school. Um, so a postdoc really is part of the the package, but it's also opportunity to like show that you're truly an independent scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that word like gets thrown around a little bit too much. Like most science is collaborative and like opportunistic. We don't really independently come up with crazy ideas like the space thing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I think I will definitely do a postdoc. I'm not quite sure if I'll like venture a little bit more back into the wet lab um, of like, design um or just like familiarity with what it really looks like to do spatial transatomics like experiments um or just do maybe even something even more um on like math and statistical frameworks um maybe even something like more computer Mm science-based but yeah it could go in kind of either
0: direction
1: yeah and for our listeners that um are not aware, a postdoc is even more school after your PhD. Well, not really, but kind of a bridge between PhD and an exposition. Um, I've seen them from like one to five years. Uh, you can do them mostly in an academic setting, but I've seen them in industry as well. And it's a really a time for you to like you said, find your scientific niche and put out a lot of research output where you're leading the projects a lot more independently than when you're mm-hmm. in grad school.
0: Yeah, and I think the one thing you shared that still um, hits on something that I'm interested in is sort of developing that theme and organizing around that theme. That's something that excites me. I don't know if that will necessarily comprise itself ultimately in an academic career, but um I think that is one area where we're kind of on the same page of, you know, like going really deeply into a question and then like building energy and community around that. I think that's really unique and something that academia does allow to an extent.
1: And it's it's also a strategic thing because you're going to want to have to build that community, like you said, and those collaborations before going for like your first grant as a PI. The show mm-hmm. that you have that grant,
0: mhm,
1: mhm,
2: yeah, one thing that I'm looking at now is like applying for that type of like transition grant from graduate school to postdoc, and I think that even if you don't like get the grant, like doing the process of mm-hmm. if I do have a question, like how do I build up that question to aims and mm-hmm. like who do I seek as a collaborator, like that process is important to like learn those skills because that's mm-hmm. going to be something you'd be doing as a postdoc and as a professor.
0: Alrighty. Well, Kaylin, thank you so much for your time here today. It was really, really awesome getting to know more about you, more about your work. Um, where would you like people to find you, if at all? <laughs>
2: oh, um, so, yeah, it is really ho- uh, nice of you to see you guys. Um, if people want to find me, I am on X or formerly Twitter, um, Kaylin underscore Clifton. Um, and I'm um, also LinkedIn as well. I think it's also Kaylin underscore LinkedIn. Um, nice. So yeah, I, sh- I share a bit there. And um, I think it may be linked to my my GitHub as well. That's a lot of where the projects that I'm working on. Nice.
0: Well, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for tuning in today. Um, if you want to learn more, again, head to our show notes to check out the paper, check out Kaylin's GitHub. And also just learn more about the other awesome work that she's doing and going to be continuing to do. I think um, right now for compile Cafe, we're so excited to be getting started with this new edition.
1: We also want to hear from you guys. So if you have any specific questions, please send them to podcast at bio.org.
0: All right. Well, thank you, everyone. Again, I'm Janae.
1: And I'm Melissa
0: the comp bio cafe podcast is brought to you by ijama Miramiku, melissa minto and Janae adams learn more about us at BlackWomenComBio.org. And also tap into ways that you can become a member or a supporter today. Thank you for listening.